Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Hello, good evening and welcome everyone. I would like to first begin our conversation tonight by extending a welcome to His Excellency Dr. Ali bin Tamim, Chairman of the Arabic Language Center and Secretary General of the Sheikh Zayed Book Award. Thank you for joining us this evening. I would also like to introduce Moza Shamsi, Acting Direct Executive Director of the Abu Dhabi Arabic Language Center and Director of the Sheikh Zayed Book Award, who would like to speak to us for a few minutes. We are delighted with the ongoing and fruitful cooperation between Sheikh Zayed Book Award and NYU Abu Dhabi Institute and the substantial role it plays in deepening cultural understanding. Elf Layla Layla, 1001 Nights, continues to be a major source of intellectual and literary cultivation for everyone around the world enriching Arabic and global culture with, with, with an everlasting touch of inspiration. This, this is a stellar work that is open to research and analysis, actually. And that is what our distinguished guests are about to do in today's seminar. Thank you for joining us. And many thanks for His Excellency, Dr. Ali bin Tamim, Chairman of Arabic Language Center and Secretary General of the Sheikh Zayed Book Award for his leadership, counsel, and guidance. We shall now, uh, we shall now start. Thanks. Thank you so much, Moza. I'd like to begin by briefly introducing the two speakers tonight who are going to be in conversation about the legacies and afterlives of the 1001 Nights. Uh, first, Professor Richard van Leeuwen is a senior lecturer in Islamic studies at the University of Amsterdam. He's published widely on the history of the Middle East, Arabic literature and Islam, and is also a translator of Arabic literature. He received the Sheikh Zayed Book Award for Arab Culture and Other Languages in 2020 for his book, which we will be talking about this evening, and I'm very excited about that, The Thousand and One Nights in 20th Century Fiction, Intertextual Readings, published by Brill Publishers in 2018. Our second speaker is uh, Professor Philip Kennedy, who is an academic and researcher specializing in Middle Eastern Islamic studies. Hi, Philip. He holds a PhD in classical Arabic poetry, and he is the vice provost for public programming at the NYU AD Institute and the general editor of the Library of Arabic Literature. He also received the Sheikh Zayed Book Award for Arab Culture and Other Languages in 2019 for his book, Recognition in Arabic Narr Narrative Tradition, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2016. So welcome everyone. And I want to start by talking a little bit about what is so special about the Thousand and One Nights for my two speakers. I know for me, it's fascinating because it's a text that technically has no one author and no one origin. Um, and what's amazing about it, what keeps bringing me back to it is the figure of Shahrazad herself who is the storyteller, right? The identifier of the night. So I wanted to start by asking both of you, uh, what is your favorite tale? What is your favorite interaction with the Thousand and One Nights? 
Richard, would you like to start? You're muted. Mute. Sorry. Uh, thank you for your introduction. Um, of course, uh, asking about the most favorite tale of the Thousand and One Nights is, is one of the most difficult questions to answer about the Thousand and One Nights, uh, because the collection is so enormous and it's so uh, enormously diverse. Uh, of course, there are stories that are more uh, accomplished than others. Uh, some stories are even quite tedious, uh, whereas others are, are entertaining. Uh, but on the whole, I should say that uh, there's, there's a story for every mood and for every taste. And even if, if stories are not very successful in the objective sense, then, then usually they are quite curious and strange. So they're always interesting somehow in one, one respect or another. And of course, uh, uh, I translated the Thousand and One Nights into Dutch. Uh, so the correct answer for me would be to, to, to say that, that all the stories are equally important and interesting uh, to me. But on the other hand, I should say that uh, there's one story that I particularly uh, like very much um, uh, because it's, it's, it's uh, epitomizes the, the complexity of the Thousand and One Nights and the, the, the complex backgrounds and origin and trajectory of the Thousand and One Nights. And that's the, the story of the Queen of the Serpents, uh, which is a very large, uh, long and uh, long story. It cont contains references to very ancient material, uh, to, to magic, to uh, well, love. Uh, it has embedded stories as well. So it's it's a kind of story representing the, 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 the tradition of the Thousand and One Night as a whole, the complexity and the different themes that are uh, treated in, in the various uh, stories of the material. Thank you. Philip? You're still on mute. We're good at this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Richard. I thought your answer was, was, was great. Hard to follow. Um, so I'm, not, I'm not a translator of The Thousand One Nights in, in, in part or even in, in their fullness. But, uh, I do want to start by thanking Dr. Ali and Tamim for being in attendance. I can only <clears throat> say that I believe he's in attendance because I can't see him. But that seems to be a, a kind of Bourgeoisian um, situation that we're in. So I, I do mean it from the bottom of my heart, you know. It's great that you're there, Dr. Ali. Uh, I'm thinking of you. And thank you for, for being behind this uh, joint uh, venture, the Institute and, and Sheikh Zayed Award. Um, as to the question, you know, I think Richard made some very obvious points, but uh, essential points, the vastness of the corpus makes it almost impossible to say uh, what is your favorite story. It's, you know, it's like the syndrome. I always think of the syndrome coming out of the cinema and someone asks you, did you like the film? What's your favorite film? I say, well, the one I just seen. <laughs> it's just the one I just seen. The one I just seen, why? Because I can remember it, you know, there's so much to remember. And uh, of course, our brains don't capture all, but I, 
my in part my answer would be the the tale of Zamorod and uh, Ali Shard because uh, uh, the way that Pier Pasolini made that story his, but of course respected it uh, in its original spirit, and because of the um, the way it, the, the way the act, actors portray you know such um, likable characters. Some of them are of course dastardly characters, but the, the likable ones are very likable, and I like the story because of it and because of the way he's trans made a collage. Of, of Arabian Nights stories within the frame of the Zamurud Ali Shah tale. Um, and, but respecting while doing that, uh, the structure of the whole story as a romance. Uh, so I love that story. Um, but I do like, I do like the two viziers because I think it's a, a, a perfect study in comic romance. It's almost, uh, and, and it tells a lot about the poetics of these stories of the people who, uh, whoever they were, these mysterious redactors knew what they were doing in terms of the poetic narrative. You know, it's like this is a, a real study in poetics um, of a certain kind of narrative construction. I love that story and I like to, to link it with the story of the Barma Kids. But of course, I asked about the Barma Kids off stage or later because it, they're not in the nights, surprisingly. It's one of the big surprises for me. Except in so far as Jafar al-Barmaki is always their company, Harun Rashid and Masroor, uh, the big irony being that they're bosom pals in the night, but um, yeah, of course we know that uh, Harun al-Rashid had uh, Jafar al-Barmaki butchered on one night in 803 of the common era. Um, uh, so, but I'd, I'd say my favourite story, but I, I, I sort of what am I reticent in saying this is because it's so hard to talk about is, is that the, the, the poor and the three ladies of Baghdad, the complexity of that, of that ensemble is to me uh, unmatched in, in all the world literature, you know, as a collage, collage of stories that mean, um, that's, that means something as a whole in, in their aggregate, they mean something. And, and the, the aggregate accumulates, you know. Um, I love the mystery of it, this, this mysterious house. No one, there's nothing like it. These three women who uh, are the, um, the household, household owners of this mysterious house where mysterious things happen. Of course, nothing more mysterious than three people turning up one day. Uh, at the same time, um, it didn't, they didn't know each other, but with one eye and, and shaved in the same way, a very odd way, I must add. Uh, and they show up at the same time as Haruna Rashid, Masroor, and Jafar Barmaki, and lo and behold, who I've just mentioned. And, and then, then things happen that are just crazy. Of course, it, it, it brings out a lot, of, a lot of human themes, and one of them is, of course, the curiosity that will we humans have and the curiosity of hearing a story. When we see something odd, we want to hear a story. And this, this ensemble makes such a good um, aggregate of the curiosity of wanting to hear stories. Mm -hmm. I also like, and I'm going to say this because it's odd. <clears throat> um, you only wondered what I know, but, uh, um, you know, in, in this discussion of Coleridge, I don't know where I read this, whether it's Earl Robert Owen or someone else who's analysed Coleridge. 
he says the ancient mariner, I mean, Coleridge loved the Thousand One Nights from when he was a young boy. And he was actually, when his father found that he, he would wait in, in, the, in, the, in the library of his house waiting for the sun to shine upon the library shelves where the Thousand One Nights were ranged. And when his father found out that he was obsessed by these books, he took them away because <laughs> they were having a bad influence on Coleridge. Don't know what that was, but anyway. Um, but Coleridge, yes, he, he loved the knights, among many others of his generation. Um, I think it's always easier to find the exceptions than, than those who did like the knights. But Coleridge's ancient mariners, yeah, in one person, one scholar, I thought, said something very insightful about the ancient mariner and mariner and in fact it might have been inspired by the first <clears throat> the first set of tales that uh, Sherazade begins to tell which is the tale of, of the merchant and the genie and it's the story of the, of the merchant who's peeling a date and he throws the date pit away and kills a genie's son in doing that and it's the fate that falls upon him that he cannot avoid that that is it evoked for this scholar in, in Coleridge's Ancient Mariner. Once you've done something, the, the fates that, that, that chase you then uh, will never stop chasing you until things take their course. That's why I like that. Absolutely. I mean, you, you actually, but first I want to say that Dr. Ali bin Tamim is with us and is hearing you. Um, so I thought, yes, you would like to hear that. And then you led us, Philip, to my next question, actually, uh, to both you and Richard, which is Richard's fantastic book is all about the multiple and many returns of the Thousand and One Nights. Um, and I was wondering, in connection to this conversation on Coleridge, maybe you can tell us, Richard, your favorite or one of your favorite returns. Um, your book is very rich and goes through so many wonderful examples and i'll come back to several of them but maybe you can tell us about one of your favorite moments of adaptation and return um, in modern or contemporary literature of the thousand and one nights um, well i thought the, the the previous question was difficult but this is even more difficult <laughs> <laughs> uh, but of course uh, the the whole uh, uh, work on this on this book and the research has been a kind of uh, journey of, of of discovery. I mean, I, I uh, it, it provided an opportunity to 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 read and to to uh, explore uh, Western literature and Arabic literature in quite a new way. And being guided by the, the, the uh, phenomenon of the Thousand and One Nights, uh, which opens up an enormous universe of, uh, of literature, uh, not only literature, because the, uh, the book is, is con the, the whole trajectory of the Thousand and One Nights is, uh, is uh, connected with, with history, with cultural history, with politics, cultural exchange, etc. So it's not only literary influence, which, which is uh, relevant for this kind of research. Um, and I started uh, reading uh, uh, about the, the influences of the Thousand and One Nights in the 18th century, uh, which is, of course, the, the period in which uh, 
well, Western literature, modern Western literature was, was invented, was uh, being developed for the first time. And uh, it is no coincidence, I think, that, uh, that uh, The Thousand and One Nights was translated in the beginning of the 18th century and immediately uh, had an enormous response among uh, literati in, in Europe, especially in France and England and Germany. And um, this is, I think, the period in which the uh, Thousand and One Nights translated the French translation of the Thousand and One Nights. And because this is very important uh, that we, if we talk about the Thousand and One Nights and its reception and influence in, in uh, Western literature, we talk about translations because usually uh, authors could not read Arabic. So they had to rely on, on the, the versions that, that were available to them. Uh, so this means that the, the tradition of, of literary influence is, is intimately related to the tradition of, uh, of translations. Um, but uh, there was an enormous response from, from writers uh, from, from various kinds uh, who read A Thousand and One Nights and were immediately enthusiastic and who used the material of The Thousand and One Nights and the example, the concept of The Thousand and One Nights to experiment with uh, new literary forms. And this is the way in which uh, The Thousand and One Nights became part of the Western literary, literary tradition. Uh, so from the beginning, actually, it was, I should say, uh, uh, not so much received, but incorporated into the, the Western literary field uh, in, the, in the phase in which Western literature was, was developing. Um, and this, this continued. I mean, it, uh, uh, Thousand and One Nights became part of, you might say, the DNA of, of, of Western uh, literature and Western culture. And, and it stayed that way during the 19th century and during the 20th century. And this is actually uh, one of the things that I would like to show uh, in, in my book, that, uh, that although the influence of the Thousand and One Nights has been acknowledged to a certain extent, it has not been accepted yet, recognized yet, that it has had such a structural influence on the development of Western and European literature. And not only in the 18th century, but actually in all the different phases of its uh, development, and especially uh, in phases in which authors experimented with uh, new forms and new genres and new types of literature, and bo both in, in uh, in the 19th century, the, the uh, uh, different kind of development of the, of the European novel, but also in the modernist and postmodernist periods uh, in which uh, new forms were, were sold. So if you look at this, this enormous trajectory and, and the many uh, authors and works that have been influenced by the Thousand and One Nights and that have, have cooperated in uh, contributed to, to integrating the Thousand and One Nights into to Western literature. So, and you can see uh, that it's really in, in, in a vast amount of, of uh, works. Mm -hmm. If I restrict myself to, to the 20th century and to the, the, uh, the, the authors that I uh, studied for, for this, uh, this book, um, there are several um, 
you might say, uh, fields which, which were really uh, discoveries uh, for me. Uh, one is, for instance, the, the importance of uh, the Thousand and One Nights in the development of modern Argentinian literature. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not only Borges, uh, it's wide, widely known that Borges was interested in and influenced by the Thousand and One Nights. Um, but authors before him and after him also referred to the Thousand and One Nights. And you can say that in modern Argentinian literature, the Thousand and One Nights became a kind of a trope, uh, which was structurally uh, uh, linked uh, in, in the, the uh, development of, of, uh, of Argentinian literature. Um, another example is the, the uh, interest in the figure of, uh, of Aladdin in Scandinavian literature, which I, which I didn't know before, um, which is amazing because um, it is because of uh, the, the, the 19th century play, which is called Aladdin and the Magic Lamp, written by, by uh, Eulen Schläger, who is more or less the founder of, of modern Danish literature. And he used Aladdin as a kind of trope, uh, a kind of character which represented uh, Danish Scandinavian culture in, in the modern era. And so uh, intellectuals and writers took up this, this example and, and uh, elaborated on this. So he became a kind of uh, uh, icon within uh, Scandinavian literature, representing the different uh, aspects of, of modernity in, 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 uh, in Scandinavian countries. So he, he returns, the figure of Aladdin returns in, in, in many different forms, in, in novels and plays and music even, uh, and painting in, in Scandinavia as a symbol of, uh, of Scandinavian modernism. And then I was really amazed by, by the way in which uh, The Thousand and One Nights uh, was uh, served as a kind of intertextual reference for uh, authors uh, uh, in Germany in the interwar period, which is really amazing. Uh, these are usually authors who were, uh, uh, well, we would say uh, right-wing conservatives, uh, which, which, and you, you would not, so, uh, not expect really that that they would be interested in this kind of material. But in fact, uh, the the work. Of, for instance, Ernst Jünger was greatly uh, inspired by several tropes from the Thousand and One Nights. So this was really a discovery, and and the discovery is of course the the, the many different ways in which uh, the material of the Thousand and One Nights uh, was used uh, by these different uh, authors and how they. Uh, because uh, the, the authors are so different and their interests are so different, uh, but they could always refer to the Thousand and One Nights and find, find examples and find inspiration. And this is, this is uh, well, really uh, amazing, actually, if you, if you, if you uh, find out uh, these, these uh, influences. But if you, if you like to have an answer, a concise answer, uh, which is perhaps too difficult, but uh, there is actually one author which I really admired and which which I had read before, but but really rediscovered. And because I reread his works, and I found a lot of new 
uh, yeah, views on his on his uh, work, and that's uh, Vladimir Nabokov or Nabokov. I don't know how you pronounce it, but um, I was really uh, astonished by by the richness of his work and and the way he. Um, he, he refers to the Thousand and One Nights in a very complex way. Of course, his work is very complex, and you can read it in a very straightforward way, but it contains so many different levels. And to see how he weaves the Thousand and One Nights in these these levels in, in different works is, uh, is really amazing. So, so on, on the one hand, uh, it's, it's, the question is, is, is too big to answer, but on the other hand, uh, there are, of course, uh, favorite authors and favorite cases. Thank you so much for that very rich answer and the rich book that you've given us. Um, and I really, really especially like how you talk about translation of the nights from the beginning as being an act of appropriation that from the get-go became constitutive of European narrative and narrative experiments, um, which really challenges or a dominant view or orientalist approach to reading the nights or the interaction between Europe and the nights, right? And this is one of the things I found really fascinating about many of your conclusions was how you look at how the nights are recycled and used one to explode narrative forms and create new ones, but also to reflect on one's own culture um, and what's broken and what's working and what's not. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. And the way you made the link now just makes me think of how the many adaptations of the Thousand and One Nights are in fact a beautiful metaphor for world literature um, if we were to take it very seriously. Um, as how texts actually travel um, and become parts of other places in real ways, in really contextualized ways. Um, I wanted to to go to you now, Philip, and and see if if you would like to comment on your favorite or one of the most poignant forms of adaptation of the nights um, in modern literature for you. You're, you're muted still. Philip, you're on mute. Sorry. <laughs> there we are. Ah, learning. Okay, yeah, uh, thanks for the question. Sorry to be <coughs> a bit of a mutant with this Zoom thing. Um, uh, I like Richard's answer, and I, I can only sort of, <coughs> sort of genuflect at uh, the helm of, of, of uh, Richard's scholarly gown, really, I'd say. And begin by talking about his book, which I think is an amazing book. I mean, I think if anyone reads the chapter called Children of the Nights in, in Irwin's famous book, uh, The Arabian Nights Companion, we'll probably recognize most of the authors that uh, Robert there talks about as having had an influence, uh, uh, having been influenced by the Knights. But, but what you read in, in um, we're in a different place with 
Richard's book. And it struck me because I haven't, you know, it's a, a book that takes a long time to digest um, intellectually. And um, so it's a book I carry on reading. I was struck by so many things, but one thing that struck me on, on, on macro level was that uh, this book is really a kind of, it seems to me, a, a kind of writing out of the, the poetics of narrative for the 21st century, 21st century. Um, that may or may not have been influenced by the knights, mm. but may well have been influenced by the knights. Not all, I don't think, I, I don't know if it should be agreed, not all the texts that he deals with are necessarily texts where the author was conscious, consciously doing something with the Arabian Nights. But on some level, yes, there is a, and if you take the whole book, the book as a whole, then there is something that, that Richard has done, which to, really to, to talk about the essential poetics of narrative. And because the, the Thousand One Nights is such an important um, uh, um, collection of texts for, for how narrative works, I think um, he's done a, f a fantastic thing in, in allowing us to see further, yeah, I would say, to see further. And, and some of the choices, of course, I like Borges a lot as a return. Of course, the theme of return is so, Relevant to the night because of the, the theme of because of the preponderance of romances and romance, of course, always ends with a return and two viziers and one of my favorites ends with return uh, and the re recreation of identity or the reappropriation of one's own identity, not someone others. Um, what I was very struck by, I'll say two, two more things then. I really like Dominic Cook's adaptation of the Arabian Nights for the stage. Um, he, did, he brought it to New York in 1999, and it was for a young audience, but also an, 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 uh, a mature audience. And he did really what Pasolini did, but the style is completely different. Um, he, he constructed a whole out of um, bricolage, you know, taking bits and pieces from the Arabian Nights, not many of which are in Mahdi's um, so-called uh, pure core of the Nights. I like I like what he did, Dominic Cook. I think it works very well, <clears throat> and I can talk about the poetics of that if you like. But I won't. I've written about it. I want to turn to something that was completely astounding to me. I almost fell off my chair when I started reading Absalom, Absalom, in Richard's book because that is a book. It's one of my favourite books. I've read it twice. <laughs> yeah, William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. I never thought of the Arabian Nights when I was reading that. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's an extraordinary book, uh, a very um, visceral book, uh, and of course, story telling stories is so much a part of it. Uh, that uh, I'm still struck by that, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm st I feel I'm only sort of a quarter way there to understanding how Richard means what he is telling us. But um, because of the newness of what Richard is telling us, that perhaps is something I would. Uh, I would <coughs> mark around as something, uh, as something of vital interest to me now, mm. uh, as someone who studies literature. <laughs> Maybe we can talk about it in a bit, but um, that's all I'll say. Well, to me too, actually, it's this—it's particularly this notion of what 
constitutes influence, right? And this is one of the amazing things about the book, Richard, is, is in many cases, some cases the influence is very obvious and in other cases the influence is not so obvious. Uh, but you can tell the story anyway, and you can create those potential stories and potential links between this after life um, and the potential origin in the 1001 Nights. And I was wondering if you could both both speak to that a little bit more as to how do you think as scholars who look at the afterlives of texts in translation, how do you think of influence? Is influence something that is um, just formal or thematic or a combination of both? Is it something that we can trace in an archive or something that we can, as readers, get a feel for? Um, as, a, as a literature scholar myself, I've always been fascinated with this notion of influence. And I'm wondering if you can just talk to, speak to how you approach influence or what influence means to you in your scholarship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Richard, you want to go ahead? Well, yes, I, I was struck by uh, you uh, using the word uh, appropriation uh, for, for the, I would say, I would say the incorporation of the Thousand and One Nights into to the, the, the Western uh, tradition or the, the tradition of world uh, literature. Because actually appropriation is not a very neutral word. word. It's, it's, uh, it has a kind of connotation within the, the, uh, the uh, model of Orientalism as it has been conceived by, by Edward Said. Because it says that uh, the West has appropriated uh, Arabic Islamic culture, uh, distorted it, uh, changed it to its own taste, uh, etc., and made something new out of it, which is different from from the authentic uh, model, you might say. So, so this is this is certainly not a, a neutral uh, term. Eh? It's it's connected with all kinds of ideological. Uh, connotations. So this is actually what I was trying to avoid. I have to say that uh, because um, because this is a, a discussion which refers to to the, the the political side, ideological side of of cultural exchange, and this is of course very important. But I think the discussion has been dominated too much by these ideological views and. As, uh, that the, the, the literary textual uh, mechanisms uh, and, and um, aspects have been lost in the discussions discussion. And what, what I would like to stress in my book is that uh, the whole process of, of uh, cultural and literary exchange uh, has its own mechanisms and its own uh, factors and, and dynamics. And so this is uh, not only ideologically driven or politically driven, but also aesthetically driven. And, um, and I think this is, this is a very important aspect. Um, I, would, I would say that, that a transmission of texts across cultural borders, cultural boundaries, would always involve a kind of appropriation, a kind of distortion, etc. So this is a natural thing. This is inherent in the, the process of transmission. And you cannot avoid it. And in fact, 
it is uh, it is it is more or less required for a literary work to be uh, to 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 make the transition from one literary field to another and to be to some extent adapted and and uh, accommodated to to a new taste to the new structure of a literary field in which it has to to evolve to flourish and so i would i would like to see this this process of of influence as um, a kind of the creation of a kind of intermediate zone in which a literary work is uh, situated in, in, in translated form and acts as a source of literary material which is used by others. And what the, 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 the rationale of this process is that, especially in the case of the Thousand and One Nights, that it was a very strange work which came suddenly into Western culture, like like an intruder, like like uh, in German you say a fremdkörper, uh, 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 an alien alien uh, text, uh, you might say. So, and because it was inherently interesting, this text immediately authors started to look at this material to try to to uh, absorb it to to assimilate it to incorporate it into their own work and into their literary landscape and this is actually what happened i think uh, and this indicates that the interest in the thousand and one nights was not merely ideological or, or political uh, it was not only about an image of the other of the, the Arabic other. It was also uh, a genuine uh, aesthetic interest in this kind of text and in the material uh, which was involved and which required some kind of interpretation, some, some kind of interpretive process uh, to be able to, to situate it in a new uh, literary field. And so this is the process that I would like to... to um, well, propose uh, in, in starting in the 18th century, uh, uh, which um, draws attention especially to the aesthetic and literary and textual aspect of the whole process of uh, of uh, transmission. Um, and this is, I think, uh, th this is why I call this whole process uh, incorporation and and influence, and not so much appropriation or distortion uh, or whatever, uh, because the the, the uh, dynamics of the, 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 the whole process of transmission requires this kind of change, this kind of adaptation, etc. And the point is for the Thousand and One Nights that, of course, the material itself lends itself very well for, for this, this kind of incorporation because it has no author, it is very diverse, it's, uh, it's, it's more or less a diffuse kind of, of uh, text. And so, so people could use it as a kind of toolkit to, to, to do whatever they, they liked with it and to, to, to uh, use the material in a way that uh, was uh, uh, useful for their own literary views and their own textual experiments. And so, if you talk about influence, this is this is the way I would envisage uh, the influence, and and 
because of this, uh, this 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 process, because the the thousand and one nights is so suitable, so adequate for this kind of of uh, mechanisms, and this is one of the explanations for its uh, enormous triumphal. Uh, trajectory through uh, world literature, huh? because uh, in every period, uh, all di different kinds of authors with totally different backgrounds and different views, huh? they could use the material in some way or another. They could adapt it to their own literary views, to their own literary traditions, their own literary fields. And um, so I think this is one of the secrets of, uh, of the, the, the uh, the fame uh, that's the, the, the iconic status that the Thousand and One Nights uh, achieved at a certain point. Thank you so much for that. Um, so uh, I'll stop our discussion and turn to the questions and I do want to encourage the audience to please write in questions in the Q&A section if you have them for our speakers. But thank you so much, Richard, because that's really, um, I appreciated many things about your book, but this was one of the major big things is how you thought about influence in that way, away from the political and more towards um, the aesthetic and the literary and what the Knights made possible for the imagination of so many writers. So one of the things you're doing in your book is actually using the Knights to rewrite literary history. Um, from a very different perspective. And, and I really enjoyed that, the way that you explore modernism and postmodernism and their preoccupation with textuality through their relationship to the Knights, um, rather than to historical changes as is the dominant argument in literary history, something changes and people's approach to writing changes as a result. So I like that you're actually putting in that conversation as another version as to why these writers became so preoccupied with the world of the text and saving the world of the text from just being a reflection of that which is around it. Um, Philip, I don't know if you wanted to add something to this idea of influence that we're talking about. Well, I just, it's something very short, um, which is obviously, well, 1704 was obviously the, the sort of turning point year. Uh, in a in an Orientalist vein, of course, because that's the year when Galois, Frenchman, translated the first set of his first set of, and then eventually the whole set of Arabian Nights stories into French, and had an immediate influence. Were within two years they were translated into English, actually anonymously, oddly enough. <clears throat> um, and I think, in terms of bad influence. One might say a word that uh, the bad influence happened immediately and then it just got slightly less bad <laughs> as the years went by with the politics and literature being being the way they are but in some kind of linear fashion. I don't think that's true at all. You have to think about a very complex map. I mean, for example, in Japan, the, uh, the J Japanese were isolated for a long time. It's well known. Uh, literary terms in the 18th century, 19th century, they learned about some, what they learned about the Arab world was through the Arabian Nights. But not through the Arabian Nights, Arabic Arabian Nights, but from the, from the English Arabian Nights, you know, pantomime and that sort of stuff. And so there was this sort of um, dysfunction, <laughs> if you like, in, in what they were really understanding. 
when they were in, when when they were fascinated by and influenced by the Illuminates and made their own uh, stories influenced by them. And this is there's a photo here. I don't know if you can in this book that I edited with Marila Warner. Can you see from a and then a, a, a 19th century adaptation story, Arabian Nights as what you have there. It's supposed to take place in Japan. On one side, you've got a, clearly a, a Japanese woman mm. saying that, clearly, the way she's dressed and stylization. Now, on the other side of the room, it looks like um, a drawing room in, in the Victorian, <laughs> you know, on Baker Street, in Kirk 1850. You know, what's going on? It's because they. They thought, oh, well, it's, uh, yeah, that's the sort of, we got English, we got, uh, and we got what we want. So they just, <laughs> so, it's quite, so I mean, that, that's, that's obviously a um, dysfunctional uh, representation, but not, but, but part of the history, I and mean, you have to take it on board. But what I wanted to say quickly, the bit I wanted to say quickly is the following. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, so the, the influence might have been bad in some respects immediately, but is it all, all, also immediately very good? I mean, because there's a, um, another essay by Robert Irwin I keep referring to about the influence the Knights had, say, on, on the, on the uh, development of the novel in England in the 19th century, 18th, 18th century. Henry Fielding is very influenced by them in a positive way, not because of the magical surrealism and fantasticality. Mm and the fantastical nature of the stories because of the uh, realism that's in them, actually. Uh, the hunchback, uh, tale of the hunchback in the, in the hunchback site is, is, is what Fielding was very influenced by in, the, um, in his book, Tom Jones. Mm -hmm. And that might have been a, a, just one example of the ways that the English novel you know, changed from being Slightly obsessed with, with the, the, the phantasmagorical and more uh, a kind of mimetic. Um, with, yeah, so I'll stop there. Uh, well, by the way, by the way, there's Marina Warner's book, which tells us at the same time the influence, not because of the realism it brought, but it, it, it also allowed, it freed in the Enlightenment period the. Uh, because freed the people in the Enlightenment from the constraints of, of not believing in the magical and the, the whimsical and the fantastic. Yeah, two separate things I've said, but both had very powerful influence in, 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 the, in the West. Positive. Thank yeah, thank you for that, because that's something that is, seems counterintuitive, that the, one of the major influences of the Knights was in its realism. Um, and not the fantasy aspect of it. So um, we'll come back to that. I'm going to start fielding a few of the questions that are in the Q&A. One of the attendees asked about how we can challenge the Orientalist readings um, and approach to 2001 nights. But I think, Richard, you addressed that earlier quite eloquently in on the aesthetic and the literary appropriation um, as opposed to just... Um, as opposed to just the more politically charged um, understanding, um, maybe maybe I could I can stress that the, the political uh, aspect is not uh, unimportant. Of course, it's there. The ideological 
component is is present in the the, the uh, influence of the thousand and one nights as well. And the the only thing I'm saying is that it, it should not be the only way to look at this whole. Uh, process. Uh, there are other aspects uh, as well, mm -hmm. and uh, well, an important uh, uh, element in this whole discussion is the question of authenticity. Uh, what what is actually whose whose uh, property is the text? Uh, which which is the and, and this is something which is very difficult to to uphold in these in the in the case of the thousand and one nights because it its history is still quite uh, ambivalent and we don't know everything about this, this uh, um, uh, how, the, how the, the text actually developed, developed even in, in Arabic. So um, we have to, to accept uh, a certain element of, of uh, hybridity in, in the whole process of transmission of the Thousand and One Nights, uh, which includes ideological aspects and textual and literary aspects. Absolutely. I mean, another another speaker had a similar question. I want to pronounce the name Asfeta. Hopefully, I'm saying it right. But also about um, how Galon was able to, or had to, at least um, condense a lot of characteristics of many different people into certain aspects in his translations or renditions of of the nights. Um, and bringing up this idea of the demeaning stereotype um, that is born through the night. So again, this, this feeds into this other thing that you're talking about, Richard, which is how do we, yes, we understand that this happened, we acknowledge that it's there, but also what else was happening to account for this, um, the longevity of the influence and the extent of the influence of the nights. Um, so, um, one question, and this goes back to the realism, Philip, that you were talking about, um, wonders whether the, the Thousand and One Nights is actually a reflection of a more relaxed environment um, of the Abbasid Empire towards pleasure or towards desire or towards... And this is, you know, some of the arguments about the realism of the nights have to do with that, reading them in the context in which some of them, at least we know, were collected. Would you have anything to say to that, Philip? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a difficulty of chronology there in um, considering the history of the nights. Um, is anything with, with a libidinous uh, strain or strain? <laughs> Uh, more relaxed than uh, than what I'm referring to. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Mm. But I don't think it has anything to do with the Abbasids. Actually, uh, I think it's uh, most of these stories came from Mambic times. Even those that mention Harun al Rashid and Jaffa. I think Abu Shamat, uh, uh, um, Aladdin Abu Shamat is a, clearly a, a, a Mamluk story, but it has. Uh, it's set in the Baghdad where there's a Harun al Rashid and a Jafar and Badr. I presumably are the same ones that we know from, from history. So, it's this sort of they don't tell history uh, the Arabian Nights, so it's hard to um, it's hard to detail therefore a social history or, or uh, get a social history from them. Um, 
But certainly people in the West who liked things they were reading would be influenced by them. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, they felt, yeah, this is, uh, this is interesting stuff. I feel relaxed <laughs> when I read this. <laughs> We have a couple of questions. I'm going to combine um, Sonia, Khatris, and Paolo's questions um, about how do we make the night interesting for the newer generation? Um, So that's Sonia's question. And then Paolo, extending on that, the question is what would translators and scholars like to see in future translations of the Thousand and One Nights in English? Um, how, perhaps, what are the ways stylistically or otherwise that we can think about making the nights resonant and remain powerful and remain influential in the lives of newer generations, especially in English uh, translation? Um, shall I try to respond? Uh, yeah. Well, I've, I've heard uh, there is someone working on a, on a new uh, English translation, and I'm really curious uh, about the, the choices uh, she will make. Uh, because uh, we were discussing this uh, some time ago, and, and she said, well, what do you do with, for instance, the, the, the all kinds of stereotypes that are in the, the text? Of course, it's an ancient text, and it contains a lot of well, you might say uh, stereotypal or, or flat uh, characters, which, which contain some kind of uh, racial essence or, or about religion, uh, religious essence, and uh, with all the, the stereotypal uh, uh, attributes uh, connected to them. And, uh, well, it's, it's, when I translated Thousands and One Nights, this was not so much an issue, but... I think at the moment it is, and you have to to, to decide how you treat, for instance, uh, the the uh, stereotypical representations of of uh, uh, black characters, uh, and which uh, usually have a very negative uh, connotation and a negative uh, role, or Christians, for that matter, that uh, that are. Uh, almost uh, always drunk or on the way to the uh, to the tavern. Um, so uh, this is difficult. Uh, and uh, on the one hand, you can you can adapt the the text to a certain extent in in style and and um, tone, etc., to 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 make it appreciable for for uh, a modern uh, audience. But but on the other hand. And it's difficult to, to solve this kind of problem, I think. So, well, I'm really curious if, uh, if this... Of course, the, the whole tradition of translation has this kind of, um, uh, how do you say, uh, uh, accommodation to the, 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 the mentalities of the time and the, the conventions of the time. So you can... Uh, trace actually within the the tradition of the, the different translations the the uh, the context in which these translations were made yeah, because they're really different. Galant is a totally different translation from uh, the translation uh, by by Burton uh, or uh, or others. 
That's how you, you can see the, uh, in Galant the, the European Enlightenment. You can, uh, in, in, in Burton, see the Victorian uh, period in its different uh, aspects. Edward Lane also has a different, uh, uh, represents a different side of the Victorian uh, mentality. Uh, the German translations also have a very different uh, context, and you can read these contexts in the translations themselves. And so there's a continu continuity on the one hand, but also uh, the translations are being uh, accommodated and being transformed uh, in the uh, uh, development of this, this tradition. And this will, this will go on. And the translator will have to make choices. And uh, I'm glad, actually, that I'm not uh, responsible for, for making a new translation because uh, some of these, these uh, decisions will be quite uh, difficult. So. Agreed. Philip? I stuck up my hand there just at the... I wanted to make a point related to... because Richard was going through, it almost chronologically, the translators from Galar, through, through Lane, Burton, etc. And I thought I'd put my hand up and identify the culprit, if there's a culprit in all of this. Um, <clears throat> and it's Madru, Madrus, who claimed that he was producing a, um, uh, a literal translation of every word in the Arabian Nights, more or less. But in fact, what he, what he did, what he did produce, was a, a text where only about 66% of the works translated were from the Arabian Nights, the rest were, he just made them up, brought them from whatever sources he had. So he actually um, was rather dishonest with his, with his audience, but think about Madras as well. Well, I don't think one would get away with that now. He got away with it big time. I mean, he was a friend of Andre Gide, of T. Lawrence. Um, the other thing is he did was with Madras, because he was, Madras was so popular, it actually created this, this Orientalism at the end of the 19th century, uh, the turn of that century, you know, sort of the, uh, when the ballets and the symphonies, and uh, there was a kind of Orientalism, you know, and all these baggy pants that started coming out with Madras. You know, it all started there. I mean, a lot of the aesthetic started with Madras. Um, I think if we're, if we're trying to identify phases in of Orientalist takes, I think Madras wasn't a particularly healthy. Um, although I like Madras actually, and he made some good choices. Um, I just just wanted to make that point. Um, no, I, th I think it's a very important uh, example because uh, actually Madras. Uh, took material from everywhere, and he just make made a kind of uh, well uh, collection with with no original. And it, it it was just material from all kinds of sources, and and he reworked the the material also to make it more, uh, as you say, pleasing for the for the European taste at at the period eh, in which he succeeded, and and he was of course. Uh, Oriental in the sense that he grew up in, in, in Egypt, so he was considered to be uh, uh, an Oriental. And, and the critics actually praised his, uh, his translation as more authentic than the original. 
-hmm. more original actually than the original, which is, yeah. <laughs> and because, because uh, he, he did not faithfully translate the text, uh, but he reworked it uh, as being an oriental. So it, it became more authentic than the, than the original material. So this is very interesting to see how these mechanisms work and, and how strange, uh, how do you say, uh, uh, these strange effects that you create and, and what, what is actually authenticity. And, and this is, I think, a very important uh, uh, element in the whole discussion of the transmission of text, uh, because the, the idea of, of uh, authenticity more or less disappears. It, it, it should always be uh, substituted by, by hybridity or something like that, because there is no way of transmitting anything while retaining its, its, uh, its uh, authenticity. And uh, I think this is, of course, a matter of discussion, a matter of debate, uh, because it's, it's always, especially if you translate, uh, to what extent do you have to stick to an original and, and what is your, your space to, to add or to, to, to uh, change or to adapt? Uh, uh, and, and, and this question is, it has been relevant for the Thousand and One Nights because it has no author. It doesn't have real... Uh, standard texts uh, to which you can refer. So, so a lot of translators just edit uh, some material mm -hmm. uh, because they liked it or because they wanted to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to present something new. And it was always presented as more authentic than the previous translation. This is one of the uh, structural features of this whole tradition. Uh, all translators say, well, now we have the real, the real thing, the real... Uh, Thousand and One Nights, and, and all the previous translations are rubbish or they are distortion, falsifications, etc. So they added a new falsification which was more authentic. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so this is a very complex and interesting process of, of how this, this uh, transmission should be conceptualized. Can I just say something, Maya? Mm -hmm. Just to add to this. When, 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 Richard said that what he just said, that someone else is going to translate the holy really nice, but not another. I mean, because the problem is, the problem is, it's not, it's not that I object to someone doing a good translation. The problem is it's the, uh, the bibliography is so huge and it becomes messy. So I, I, when I teach maybe nights occasionally, I say, well, look, you, you might go to any bookshop in the world, although they don't really exist anymore, bookshops. They used to exist in the old days, bookstores. You go into a bookstore and you find something. You might find a version of uh, the Arabian Nights Entertainments, yeah. the anonymous uh, early, early 18th century translation. Or you might find Jonathan Scott. You'd be lucky if you did. Uh, or you might find a couple of volumes of Lane. If you've got the third supplementary one, that'd be great. Or Burton, then you'd have to find, and you'd have to t order a limousine to go home. Or, or you could find a couple of volumes of Madras. You could might find the French, or you could find the, the English translation from Madras by Powis Mailers. And it goes on and on. And so what, what, you'd, what you might find is one called the Arabian Nights, what another called the Thousand One Nights. And if you put it all together, it's a mess. 
Mm. So I say, well, what I'm going to do is clear up the mess for you. (laughs) (laughs) So that that when you've got a book in in your hand, so you picked off the shelf in some some bookstore anywhere left to light, you'll know what it is. Oh, this is the second volume of Lay. Great. I know when this was done. And I know what his penchant was for taking out all being very prudish. So there's no libidinous stuff here. Yes, I can see. <laughs> he's, doing, he's taking out the knights. Okay, there's a footnote. Are the other footnotes the professor was talking about? Great. Now you know, you've got Lane. Then you get Burton. And then you think, <clears throat> I'm not taking these home. <laughs> I'm not, take, I'm not taking these home to mum and dad. I'm going to put them in the attic and take them out when, uh, when the world's a different place. But anyway, it's just a mess. It's a mess. So who's going who's gonna, to... We just need some, some kind of... Some order, yes. We need someone to come out. Maybe it has to be Richard. An essay everyone should read that tells you... Uh, but, no, but yeah, what, what the whole idea is that the whole idea is that it's not possible to, to clear yeah, up this mess. So yeah. this is this is and it is a mess. Is. Yes, it is a mess, certainly. But uh, literature is a mess. Uh, it's it's ah. not possible to to really uh, how do you say uh, drive the the the, uh, the storytelling back into its cage. Yeah, the, the, the whole idea of the Thousand and One Nights is that once you start telling stories, there's no end. And it will go anyway. It, it will go uh, in all directions and it will always create new stories and there will always be uh, variations and, and diversity. It will cross all imaginable boundaries. Yeah, so it will go on and go on and go on and it will change, it will transform and you can never really put your hand on it and you can never confine it into into uh, a specific genre or a specific category or a specific space or a specific time and so this is the one of the interesting things of the thousand and one nights is it it exemplifies the mess that that storytelling actually is and so this is what what authors also find uh, fascinating i think about it and why Authors, even in, in, in modern time, even in recent years, and they keep drawing on the Thousand and One Nights and referring to the Thousand and One Nights because of this dynamism and that you cannot really catch the, 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 the spirit, the, the, the essence of, of storytelling. It will, it will take you uh, with it, it will, it will uh, abduct you, and you cannot, you cannot escape it, you cannot uh, resist it. And so th- this, is, this is the whole idea, and you will be drawn in, in a very messy landscape, and you will, you will never know exactly where you are. And, but this is what, what it is about. So, so you're a clear example of uh, that Shahrazad that actually succeeded in, in uh, creating this mess uh, for you and making you feel helpless, eh? because this was the whole idea, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, this is, so one of, one of the questions from Magda is to you, Richard, about what are the main aesthetic elements that um, have traveled through the Thousand One Nights to the Western tradition? Um, I would say perhaps that the confusion aestheticized is perhaps <laughs> one of them. Uh, would you consider that to be one of the highlights? Uh, another question from Al has to do with um, 
the story within the story and its influence on film and dream structure and film. Um, so maybe a way to think about these two things together is uh, the structure of the frame tale mm -hmm. uh, as a particular element, uh, aesthetic element, if we want, of the night. So there might be confusion in how we put them together and how we identify, but, but the frame tale that is definitely a repeated structure, you would say, right? That has identifiable legacies for Western literature. Yeah, well, I think there are many uh, factors that have uh, contributed to the, the popularity of the Thousand and One Nights, uh, for authors, I mean, especially. Uh, one of them is the concept of, of storytelling, the concept of the work as a, as a, a framed uh, tale. And in framing story, it is explained uh, why the stories are told and what the function of, of uh, the telling of stories uh, actually is. And it is to, to fight against violence, to, 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 give, to represent uh, a vision of the world through the imagination, uh, which, which counters kind of, uh, how do you say, closed vision of, of rigid vision of, of, of uh, a life from a specific uh, perspective, which includes violence. Yeah? So you have this opposition between violence and the imagination. This is very important as a source for storytelling and as a, as a reason why stories should be told, yeah? because actually stories are uh, what our lives are, are made of. This is actually the message of the Thousand and One Nights. And as long as you keep on telling stories, you will stay alive. If you stop telling the stories, you will not survive, you will die. And so this is a very important conceptual uh, element of, of the collection, which uh, epitomizes the, the essence of storytelling. And of course, a lot of authors recognize this and some are very explicit. You say, well, you are my audience and I have to, to uh, write interesting things uh, for you uh, to keep you fascinated. Otherwise, I will stop being a writer and I, I, will, uh, I will not earn my money anymore. I will, uh, etc. So they, they take it very literally uh, as their task. And so they take the, the, the example of Shadowzad as uh, an image of their own uh, activity. So this this is clearly something that that uh, touches upon the the self image and the essence of uh, what what writers think about their their uh, their work. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this is one important aspect, and you can return to this always. Whether you are in twenty first century, in the eighteenth or the nineteenth century, you can always go back to this basic. Uh, element is basic concept of what narration, writing, storytelling uh, is about. And so this is timeless, you might say. Uh, but I also think that, that the, the, the whole structure of framing, to have a, a, a framing tale and inserted tales, uh, is also a very ingenious device to structure storytelling. Mm -hmm. On one hand, it, it seems like a kind of uh, a device uh, to, to, to show that, that a story is never happening on its own. Yeah, there are always 
other stories connected to it. There are other stories simultaneously happening. And so, and this, this cannot be uh, uh, represented uh, in, 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 in the way uh, we do in, in modern novels, for instance, in which you can switch between times or between uh, perspectives. And so the in, inserted tale uh, is uh, uh, more or less to show that every story has its branches, has its different stories which are connected or which are uh, parallel somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other aspect is that uh, inserted s- stories uh, um, indicate that um, um, the the whole idea of postponement yeah, of of uh, uh, going to 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 stepping to new stories and yeah, to continue storytelling. So this whole um, structure of interruption and continuation is vital for the idea of storytelling. And because immediately, if a story stops, and we and there are many authors who make use of this this feeling, and that is, if a story stops, and then there's a void, and you 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 suddenly are confronted with uh, some kind of uh, helplessness. You have to know how it continues because it's it becomes part of your life. And if you want to live on, you have to know how this story continues. And so this is very important, this structure is very important for for the the act of storytelling, for the, the secret, the magic of, of uh, storytelling. Yeah? There's, uh, for instance, uh, 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 a novel by Calvino, Italo Calvino, which plays on this. Yeah? He says, more or less, that, that life is a text. So this is the same thing. And what we, we, we think we are living, but actually we are texts. So if the text is interrupted, and there's nothing left. So there's, there's a void. There's a, uh, uh, so we are all struggling and to continue the story in some way or another. If, if someone else stops, then we have to continue, or someone else has to continue. And we're always looking for this this continuation, and we always have the fear that the storytelling will suddenly stop. Mm-hmm. So, so this is, I think, for authors, a very inspiring and, and important uh, element which is represented by, by the, the framing uh, structure uh, of the nights. I, I, yes, Philip. Can we, uh, I, don't, I don't want to interrupt, but I will, I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> Do you want to talk about some missing stuff? I'm trying to, I'm making it very basic the way I'm asking the question. Because there was a question where you were going to ask us about some other, is, is, are there any stories where there's stuff missing, materials missing? Which you, how would you replace it? No, it's a question. Um, because uh, Richard was saying, you know, a story may suddenly stop. Obviously, if it stops, it needs to be continued. Mm. But I, so I just wonder if we could talk about the ten missing pages of Vale's German translation of, of, of the Arabian Nights in the uh, story called The South by Burger. Uh, if not, we can go on with the other questions. We could. Yeah, it's up. Because I, I, you know, you, you decide. You decide. 
we do have many questions. Um, right. We probably won't be able to get to many of them, but let's try to get to Yeah, and then we'll see if... Because one question from Lina has to do with Shahrazad herself, who I opened by talking about. As for me, the pivotal identifier of the nights. Um, and then the question has to do with how you two think that the character of Shahrazad has influenced other literary characters. Um, I know, Richard, in your book, you with this a little bit when you think about feminisms and localized feminism, what do we do? And this is, again, goes back to the translation, but also the question of violence. What do we do with things in the text that we're not comfortable with right now uh, or in these days? So maybe I can have the two of you think a little bit with me about uh, gender. This is a gendered storyteller at the end of the day. She is telling stories to save her life. Um, which wouldn't have been the situation had she been a man, for example. Um, so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to, to that. Uh, well, I... I think it's a very important question. Obviously, it's the important question. Shahrazad is the icon. One of the uh, icons for women in the world, uh, writ large, you know, I don't know when she became that icon, but she certainly is now. But she's always been that icon. I don't know. But there's a problem. I, I, I always... I, when I introduce that idea, and I, I say you're going to have to grow with the idea and decide what it means for you, you know. Um, there's, a pro there's a problem with the idea, the kind of paradox involved, which is the fact that we're pretty, pretty sure that we don't know who wrote the night. We're pretty sure that the redactors were men. I know why, but they probably were. And yet they created a, a, this icon of, of womanhood. And storytelling, creativity, giving birth to stories um, as a woman. So, I mean, I don't know how you deal with that paradox, if that's what it is. It's, it's, it's kind of disjunction, I don't know what it is. Uh, or is it just that it, it, there's hope for men? <laughs> and the fact that the creators of the Arabian Nights actually made the star of the show, the, the, the great woman. Who lasts down through the ages? So I, I, I find it difficult to say much more than that. But, um, so, uh, Richard, if you if you have any time, yeah. Well, I think the, the figure of Shahrazad is, of course, very very interesting, and. Uh, and I think the gender aspect is, is uh, really uh, very important uh, in this. Uh, uh, I have a theory that the Thousand and One Nights might actually be a parody on uh, a genre which existed in, in Arabic literature, but also in European literature, uh, which is uh, typically very uh, misogynistic, misogynistic, um, uh, which is about uh, a king uh, being seduced by by uh, a concubine, for instance, uh, listening to her advice, uh, doing what she says, and thereby destroying the empire. 
And because he has uh, allowed the, the sensuality, the irrationality uh, of women uh, to, to interfere with the rationality of, of the administration of his empire. And, and so this is a topos, uh, that women uh, are, are a threat to the survival of kingship, of empires, of, uh, etc. And this, 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 these roles have been inverted in the Thousand and One Nights, uh, because here, actually, on one hand, it looks like uh, the, the, the spouse of the king is destroying the empire by deceiving him and uh, by her adultery. But then, on the other hand, uh, it is Shahrazad, as a woman, uh, who saves the empire and who uh, returns uh, uh, a kind of sensitivity to, to, to the king, uh, which, which actually takes him out of this cycle of killing women and, and actually, uh, well, heading for, for the, the, the destruction of his, his empire. So I think this is kind of inversion of the stereotypical roles which existed in misogynistic uh, um, uh, literature in, in, uh, in medieval Arabic uh, uh, period. And, and, uh, but on the other hand, as Philip says, it is, Shahrazad has a kind of heroic uh, role, but on the other hand, it is, I think, quite clear that we should not immediately um, uh, attribute um, feminist, um, uh, how do you say, connotations to this. Uh, in a way, we should perhaps, but on the other hand, it is clear that, that the, the, the collection, even the frame story, uh, were uh, written by, by, by men. Uh, and they are clearly appealing to uh, male imagination as well. Of, although there are a lot of strong women, uh, but some feminists, uh, students of the Thousand and One Nights have pointed at the even at that even the the strong-willed uh, women in in many stories of the Thousand and One Nights uh, they appeal to a certain kind of uh, male image of of women as being strong and dominant, etc. So, uh, as Philip said, this is quite ambivalent, uh, and, and it's it's it can be debated. Uh, there are a lot of clearly. Uh, anti-feminist elements in the Thousand and One Nights. And there are also very strong women and weak men. But still, it is a matter of interpretation to what extent you would really connect this with modern feminist ideas. So it's not so easy. But on the other hand, you can see that it is quite easy if you if you look away from all these complexities that Shahrazad is a very nice uh, iconic figure to to uh, uh, attach all kind of of uh, feminist uh, ideas and and ideas of liberation and this has happened in in, in literature uh, quite a lot and so for some Shahrazad uh, is really uh, a feminist icon yeah? while well, for others. Uh, well, it's still ambivalent. It's it's not not easy to judge exactly what as as a narrative character in the South of that one night what she really represents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. Depends on um, which place you're reading from. I think. <laughs> yeah.
is always a difficult uh, question to answer. So I think maybe one last question, because that's something I'm also interested in. Kevin asks about the Arab or Middle Eastern reception of the Arabian Nights, the Thousand and One Nights. So we've talked a lot about the Western reception. Um, and he says that in schools, which is true, having gone to school in the Arab world, you are introduced to elite literature. So poetry of Mutanabbi, when you're going to school, you're not really taught the Thousand and One Nights. Um, and then, so the question that Kevin has is why is it not so valorized? But I would also link it to, and maybe we can talk about this in conclusion, Richard, when you talk about the Arab adaptations of The Thousand and One Nights with Tawfi al-Hakim and Mahfouz, so the legacy in the Arab world. So it's a twofold question. One, the early reception and how it was rejected as non-elite literature. Um, and then the second part is that when it was taken up, how was it taken up in modern Arabic literature? Because it seems to be very politically driven in its afterlives in the Arab world. So maybe I can have the two of you comment on that in conclusion. Philip, you're muted again. Yeah, yeah. It's a good question, yeah, obviously, yeah. Um, I mean, we were taught, I was taught at university as an undergraduate that um, Arab culture, literatures, Arabic culture society didn't really like the Knights, living in a bad, low register of Arabic, considered poorer, straight in. Whatever, I mean, it was just, you know, you get the, and we didn't, we didn't read them at, at undergraduate level. But we were told that Al-Hakim and Darsain and then eventually Nagib uh, Mahfouz started, you know, changing, changing the uh, order of things. I think. But I think, um, and, now, and now I think there is, we're in a different situation, you know. When I know, I asked him myself when I was interviewing him about Babashan. Everyone says that you were inspired by the Arabian Nights, in part to write Babashams. Is that true? Do you think that's true? He said, yeah, absolutely. It's also true of the Arab, So, you know, I think there's, things have changed. What happened before, there was some importance given to the Knights, but that it's more to do with the textual history, the Arab textual history. In the production of uh, uh, printed editions, you know, because the, the most important early printed editions, not Calcutta One, which is uh, hundred stories, I think, but with, there's no editing going on there. It was just it was just produced as um, manuals to teach from. But, but Bulak, the Bulak edition of 1835-ish, was was very important, I think, and we still use it, and that. And it showed that the, the Arabs were very much involved in the, in the process of um, sort of gathering the knights and, and allowing them to grow further after the, what, what after 1704 and what Galang did to them uh, in other languages. They were still there producing manuscripts and eventually they produced one of the most important early uh, editions, which is still, as I say, important. 
Uh, in fact, uh, um, another great fan of the Arabian Nights was um, Jamal Vitani. He gave me a copy. He had that. He had the the Bulat reprinted. Uh, lovely book. I think he had trouble with that actually. But um, I think maybe the importance is more on the Arab to, to the, the making available to Arab Arabophone readers. Um, a text to read. So I think it's in part the answer to the question, which is a big question. So yeah. I'll just stop there. Yeah. Richard, do you have any final thoughts on this? Yeah, well, uh, as far as we know, the the, the opinions about uh, the Thousand and One Nights have always been uh, ambivalent in the Arabic uh, world, in the Arabic tradition. Uh, we have references to the Thousand and One Nights in, in, in old uh, texts, uh, but usually they are considered as uh, frivolous uh, uh, literature, which is not part of the, the literary canon, which is not part of civilized uh, literature, etc., because it's about jinns and it's, it's, it has doesn't have the strict rules for, for style and, and use of language, etc., the level of language. Um, but on the other hand, it says nothing about its popularity. It might have been very popular at the same time. Yeah. And in modern times, uh, we have the same ambivalence. There are some uh, people who say, well, this is actually the whole thousand and one nights is, is an invention of the West. Yeah? It's not really representing uh, the Arabic literary tradition or, or Arabic literary taste. So uh, we should not uh, spend too much uh, attention on, on, on this, this type of, of literature because it's, it's a kind of anomaly within the Arabic tradition. But other authors, especially modern Arabic authors say, well, no, the Thousand and One Nights is one of the quintessential works of Arabic literature. It's about liberation, it's about storytelling, it's about imagination. Imagination uh, about fantasy, etc. So uh, we should uh, uh, emancipate this 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 work and liberate it from these negative connotations and use it as an example for for modern authors and a source of inspiration for literary freedom, for freedom of speech, for the liberation of women, etc. So so they're very uh, different sometimes contradictory uh, opinions and uh, which you find. Uh, but especially in modern literature, uh, I think modern authors are usually of the, the, the kind that, that are very appreciative of the Thousand One Nights and consider it very important uh, to take it as a source, source of inspiration. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Philip for this wonderful conversation. Thank you to our audience, for the beautiful questions, and for staying with us. Thank you. Thank you. I wish you all a very good evening. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.org edu slash institute